Let us love you now and always, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. And be seated. Romans 14 again this morning. I very much hope to conclude with this chapter this morning. I think I know and am sensitive to the reception of the material preached by the congregation, and I think most everybody's got the idea. Uh, It's repetitive. Paul says the same things a couple of times in different ways, but I'll bring it to a conclusion, hopefully this morning. Some questions have come up through the series and have been uh, given to me, one of which I think is important, and I know I touched on it in specific areas, but when it comes to not judging one another, Romans 14 is talking about that in the context of non-essential things only. There are places in Scripture when we certainly do judge one another, and I pointed those out. Those are in areas of um, things that are essential, that, that must be carried out. So always make that distinction. Um, and of course, the, the example comes to mind of, um, of 1 Corinthians 6, where a man was with his father's wife, and that was being allowed, and Paul told him, your glorying is not good, put a stop to this. Are you not able to judge the obvious things, the obvious matters? So we do judge, and as I've said, in the, in the Christian faith, um, to make a, a statement that a certain action or a certain lifestyle or a practice is sin is not a judgment made by man. Those judgments are already handed down by God. We just agree with those judgments. You see, the... Uh, the difference there. Um, so always make that distinction when we're talking about these, uh, this treatment of uh, Romans 14 because he's talking about things that, that are not essential things, things that are preferences of people and certainly not essential to salvation. Yeah, I'm looking for a a statement on, a very famous statement in the Proverbs, chapter 24, where it says, these things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse, nations will abhor him, but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. So in certain areas, of course, We are still to admonish one another, as I read this morning from Colossians in the lead-up to the prayer. But I'm confining my commentary in these last few weeks, particularly with things indifferent. Um, The things Paul gives as examples are, of course, food and drink and festivals and feast days, right, and uh, celebration days. So um, I'm going to read again from 
chapter 14, verses 16 through 22. Um, well, I guess through 23, and that will finish off the, uh, this section um, of the teaching. So verse 16 begins, Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned for he eats uh, if he eats, rather, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. And that is indeed one of the um, great statements of this whole passage. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Oh, Father, we ask that you would join us and strengthen our minds and hearts with the teaching of this, your holy word, this morning. We ask that you would be present with us in a powerful way, Father, and let us digest these truths to our own edification and glorify you in the task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Now, we've labored over that quite a bit. We've reached the last section of this great application. This is the application that all the other chapters were the background to they were the that was a doctrinal statement and based on those things these are the these are the teachings of how we must act on the knowledge that we have it's called the application um and the application is on the use of incidentals incidentals among the brethren in this case the apostle uses the example of food god is not concerned whether we eat this or that, necessarily, right? And we ought to be less concerned to judge one another. Now, that doesn't mean if you eat something that I consider abhorrent, and in this case, food offered to idols, that doesn't mean that I should come to the place where I eat food offered to idols. It just means I have to come to the place where I don't care that you eat the food offered to the idols. You see what I mean? And I'm going to labor that uh, to some extent this morning. Uh, indifferent, or things indifferent. Indifferent, let me give you a definition, a dictionary definition of indifferent. It means neither good nor bad. And then it says mediocre. That doesn't really fit here, but neutral in respect of some specified physical property. We can be certain that Paul's concern is not with food alone, nor with days or festivals alone. As I say often, these are partial lists, right? There are other things that Christians can find to fight over. The very next thing he says in order to elaborate his meaning is the phrase, all things. And so we read, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, 
all things are indeed pure. In other words, nothing is evil in and of itself. And I've repeated that throughout the, uh, throughout the teaching. Nothing is evil in and of itself. Paul repeats it twice, even in chapter 14. And so from this, I've given you my personal definition of superstition. And superstition is when we ascribe an inherent evil to anything other than man. We would never say this desk or this microphone is evil. Um, and we see that in the world very often. And it's, um, it's difficult sometimes to get these things across to people. But like take our Second Amendment, where there's always a great controversy about that. right? The instrument of protection or death, right? the gun itself, is not evil. And the Christians should know we can't ascribe evil to that. If the evil is always only in the user of the thing. All right? Amen. Right. Anything else is superstition. They're irrational fears. In fact, they're imaginary. And the stronger brother knows this, and the weaker brother needs to come to that knowledge at some point in time. We're not to uh, assume that 40 years later the weaker brother is still weak. And so it's the so-called stronger brother who believes this. And so he can be affected, he cannot be affected by imagined evil things. He's, he's, he's quite readily secure in his thoughts that things in and of themselves are neutral. All right? And so the brother who's rightly orient, oriented theologically knows that foods and statues and temples and other such things, festivals, are powerless to affect our spiritual status before God. And so I'll say unequivocally that with regard to the doctrinal side of things indifferent, the stronger brother is right and the weaker brother is wrong. And I can say this because we assume that the apostle himself, I'm going I'm to assume Paul is a stronger brother, aren't you? I don't think we want to say Paul is a weaker brother, be careful what you do around him, he's easily offended, I don't think that's the, the, the profile of the, the great apostle that we see in Scripture. Plus, we have these words here. All things are indeed pure, he says. And then he says, I know and am convinced by the Lord, by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself. So that is the doctrine of the nature of things. Philosophers in the Greek tradition uh, taught on the nature of things. A great philosopher, Lucretius, wrote a uh, philosophical treatise called De Rerum Natura. Uh, I remember I had to read it my first year in college. It's called, it, it, it translates as the nature of things or the way things are. The way things are. It's good for us to have a doctrine of the nature of things. Um, it should become a goal of the weaker brother to come to the same conclusion. So, friends, the weaker brother, in the final analysis, has to become teachable. A mature believer should not become the plaything of irrational fears and superstitions. However, they are powerful things if we believe them. Belief is a strong medicine, friends. Having said that, however, I do not say that the weaker needs to adopt the practices of the stronger in order to display his own personal growth. I only say that he should no longer be judgmental or offended by the innocuous tastes of other believers where things indifferent are concerned. Do we understand that? 
Now, there's a further caveat to this rule, and that is, as I've said, belief is a powerful thing. Believing is a powerful thing. Belief should rule the conscience, however, and not vice versa. The conscience of man cannot be violated without some sort of spiritual consequence. Going against your conscience, Luther said, is neither right nor safe. You've heard that. There could even be physical consequences. Conscience can be changed, but in order for such a change to take place, the conscience must learn something. It must be educated. And that begins with teaching. You know, teaching can happen. I can stand here and do all sorts of teaching, but understanding is a different function. It may or may not happen. It may be a function of whether or not I'm a good or bad teacher, or it may be a function of your conscience is not quite settled with the teaching that you're hearing. It can take some time. So it begins with teaching. Developing, maturing in your conscience begins with teaching. Most things in the Christian life begin with teaching. But they end with understanding. And it must be such understanding that reaches the center of a person's heart. Merely assenting to a set of facts is not the same as being convinced of them or of being at peace with them. Shall I illustrate? I have a great illustration from my life. You guys want to hear it? All right. I remember a time in my life when I was a young man. I was a young carpenter. And I was out in the, in the, in the workplace, and me and my fellow co-workers and my boss were restoring an old barn. All right? I remember where it was. It was over in, um, in Hanson. And uh, we were restoring an old barn. We did a lot of that in those days. And uh, there's a lot of beautiful old barns in New England that I see some tumbling down, even in my area, and it breaks my heart. I could have fixed that <laughs> uh, if you let me in there early enough. But So we're looking at this barn, and there was a shed roof on the side of it, as there is in a lot of old barns, right? And it needed some roofing, and it looked really decrepit. It did not look like you could get up there safely with your strip and shovels and strip the, the, the shingles off. But my boss looked it over, and my, my first assessment is, I'm not going up there. And my boss looked it over, and he said, no, structural integrity is good. Go ahead on up and start stripping. And I said, I don't think that looks safe enough to go up there. And then he said this wonderful phrase, and I've used it ever since, I believe it will hold you. He said, I believe it will hold you. Now, what do you think I said? If you believe it, you stand on it, right? I don't believe it. Until I believe it, I'm not going to stand on it. You can't stand on someone else's belief. That's what we're talking about. And I've used that down through the years. I haven't used it a lot lately, but down through the years, I've, I've used it because it makes the point so well. If you believe it, you stand on it. Now, I'm not saying that the man was untrustworthy, was risking my safety. He, he, in fact, it, 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 you want to know the end from the beginning? It was safe enough. We eventually all got up there. He was right, and we stripped it. It still looked crooked, but it was solid. He got up there and jumped around and said, come on up, you sissy. Only he didn't, only he didn't say sissy. Um, I, had, I adopted my, my company uh, slogan right after that, safety last. <laughs> (laughs) 
little do you know, that really was the company slogan. I was kidding, but I said it a lot. And then I fell and broke all my ribs and, I, and was embarrassed and said, maybe we'll change the company slogan. Um, so I'm not saying that, uh, that I doubted him or that he was trying to risk my safety. I'm saying that if you yourself are not willing to stand on your belief, then it's likely that it is yet to plant itself in you in the realm of conscience. Right? I'm also saying that his belief in and of itself did not translate to my comfort. So when you tell someone, oh, no, that thing's not dangerous at all. Don't worry about it. Just partake of it. And the guy can sort of believe you on one level, but it isn't settled in there, in the, in the realm of conscience. You know what I mean? And you can't expect him to just go for it right then and there. I remember years ago, I talked to a friend of ours, Karen and I had some friends that were Jehovah's Witnesses. And I find it a very simple matter to have a discussion with one of the cultists about the deity of Christ with the scripture. Always open the scripture and show them, them that indeed Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God, and that's something they reject. And I showed it to her over and over from the, from the plethora of sources in the Old and New Testament that Jesus Christ is God. And she said, I see it now. Jesus Christ is God. I said, so are you going to leave Jehovah's Witnesses? And she said, no. You see what I mean? And you know what I've said about that before. You can't be deceived and know it. But once you do know it and you stay deceived, you're just stupid. So I have to tell you that um, my years of living in this world have not increased my trust of experts. I'd probably do the same thing again if someone said, go up and stand on that. We'd probably have the same scenario all over again. For me to do a thing, it must be right in my mind and heart and not in another man's mind and heart, and I give you that same privilege. And that's what Paul is saying. We owe each other. And that's the apostles' essential lesson for us. Understanding alone, we might say, is the beginning of wisdom. Understanding is the beginning of wisdom. Resting on the conclusions of right teaching often takes time. It's like when you break a bone. Remember a couple years ago I broke my ankle and I was up here with the big boot on? Um, Once that got better and we saw it, we saw it better on the, uh, what do you call it, the x-ray, and uh, I was told it was fine and I could do what I wanted. I was still very tenuous and took my time putting weight on that and walking or running or going upstairs. Very careful for a while until I was really confident. That's the kind of teaching we're talking about. You have to become to a place of comfort to get to that level that the stronger brother is at. He didn't get there in one day or very simply. So understanding alone is not enough. You must come to the place where you can rest on the teaching, where you can live in it, when you can depend on it. And then when the break in the bone becomes a thing of the past, a new confidence of wisdom, of experience, of spiritual discernment strengthens the believer and his relationship to the world and the things around him. And with regard to this verse, your new confidence should strengthen your regard for the scruples of other believers. They must not be tempted, much less forced, to participate in a thing they are not at peace with. All right? 
do not destroy the work of God, the verse reads. Now, what's he talking about? Do not destroy the work of God with food. Well, what's the work of God? The work of God that the passage refers to here is the loving unity of the brethren. He doesn't want us to destroy or disrupt the unity of the brethren over something that, quite frankly, God doesn't care about. You made it up in your mind. You're nitpicking. Evangelicals are the great nitpickers of the world. Been around a while. Some of you have, too. Church unity is prized by God. And by the way, you don't come to church unity by voting. It's not democratic. You come by teaching. You don't just have a vote and say, well, we all believe that food offered to idols is bad. It is therefore bad. We had a vote in the congregation, and that's it. That's not how it's done. All right? It comes through teaching. It comes from the top down. All right? Church unity is prized by God. We know this very well. There's the Psalm of David where he writes, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I know you know Psalm 123. It's a very short psalm, but it's a, it's a very wonderful tribute to the loving unity between brethren. Um, so he goes on to speak of the spiritual refreshment that it is to find this essential spiritual unity among the members of the local church. Remember the refreshment? He talked about unity as the dew of Hermon. You wake up in the morning in that arid place and you look on the mountains, on the mountainside, and it's drenched with, with this wonderful frosty dew just for a little while till the sun comes up. But that's probably the only... Uh, drenching that water and that, that, that grass in that place is going to get. Unity is like that, the Lord said. It's like a drink. It's like a cold, cool refreshment from heaven. And so David writes, It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So what is the mountain of blessing? Where did God command the blessing of life? Well, we could say he did it on Mount Zion. But if you're, if you're a lover of poetry and you understand poetry, you realize what he's saying is, no, it isn't, the Mount, it isn't Mount Zion that he's talking about. What he's talking about is the mountain of unity between the brethren. That's a great high summit of brotherly love that the Lord is trying to cultivate in us through Romans 14. Unity of the brethren is the height and summit of congregational love. It is the very wellspring of life, and David even calls it the wellspring of eternal life. Can you imagine being in contention with your brethren on down through eternity? You've got to wonder where you ended up if that's the case. So the implication of both the psalm and the passage from Romans is that unity is precious because it's based in love. And love must contain within it the sympathetic action of bearing with the incidental scruples of one another. It comes with knowing that every person who comes into God's church comes with many personal scruples. Boy, if we really wanted to, we could nitpick each other to death, and I've seen it happen. It's like vultures nitpicking a carcass that there's nothing left to nitpick on. 
Now, I've said that no inanimate thing is evil in and of itself, but there is an evil in the spiritual world, hell-bent on infusing our thoughts with evil intentions. The scripture apprises us of the spiritual battle that takes place all around us. So there's something out there, we know what it is, we know the leader of it has a name, we call him Satan, it means the adversary, right? Ha-Satan, the adversary, He's out there trying to fire up the churches to disunity over nothing. And we read about it. First, uh, Second Corinthians, rather. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, we're at war. There is a spiritual battle. Some things, you know, I've, I'm of the opinion that all things are theological. All problems are theological. You've heard me say that. All problems are theological. And the first thing people say is, oh yeah, when my drain's clogged, that's a theological problem. And thankfully, we have our plumber right in the front row. And I can always answer that by saying, yes, your, your clogged drain is a theological problem. And they think I'm insane. But it's because your clogged drain isn't your problem, it's your test. Your problem isn't your problem. How you handle your problem is your problem. Therefore, all problems are theological. We are constantly at war to handle our problems wrongly and to lose the incremental battles and lose the ultimate victory in the war. So we walk in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty, though. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, what are strongholds? Well, they're not real Stone walls around buildings, you know, strongholds, they're arguments, they're thoughts, they're things that exalt themselves against right knowledge. And so he writes, they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every thought... Every problem is a theological problem, and I'll hold to that. You see, the spiritual battle is a battle for your thoughts. Do you remember in the George Bush years, we went out to battle in all these battlefields, right? Do you remember what they told the U.S. military to do? The U.S. military had a bad reputation, all right, around the world. What did they tell them? You remember what they said? Win what? Their hearts and minds. Do you remember the strategy? Nobody remembers the strategy? I don't get one person shaking their head. Win the hearts and minds. I thought this, everybody, oh yeah, I remember that. Um, win their hearts and minds. In other words, go into the cities of Iraq and give candy and toys to children and help old ladies across the street. And don't just be the guys that come in and shoot the bad guys and sometimes mistake the good guys for the bad guys, which happens often enough, Right. So win their hearts and minds, they said. The army was told to do that. The enemy may be physically and militarily defeated, but if he's still convinced that his cause is right and just, he'll just lick his wounds and wait for another opportunity to pounce. He's not done. You haven't demolished him. You have to convert him to demolish him. See, this is why we'll never have an honest political discussion between media and politicians about the wars in Israel. We'll never have a real discussion because the problem is in Israel and the problem isn't Palestine. The problem is, is Islam, but we're not allowed to say it. It's a theological problem. 
So we'll never get there. You know, I'm going to digress here to talk about this for a minute, and I made some notes. I took them out of the notes because it got pretty, pretty hefty. But um, note how instructive this ongoing struggle in Israel is for us at this time. It's the two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, fighting. The world doesn't understand this. I have friends. Why are they still fighting over there? It's been thousands of years. Why can't they come up with a two-state solution? Friends, two-state solution isn't going to solve anything. It's theologically charged. It's the same struggle Isaac had with Ishmael, the same struggle that Jacob and Esau had. Only a new spirit can bring an end to the struggle. Consider the words of a former Palestinian leader. There was a Palestinian leader in my day named Yasser Arafat. Anybody? Please, someone shake their head. Okay. And here's what he wrote. I find this this incredible that this is what he said in 1991. Be assured that the many indignities heaped upon the Palestinian people since ancient times must and shall be avenged. Now, how ancient do you think he's referring to? 500 years ago, 1,000, 2,000. Listen to what he says. Israel's policy in the occupied territories is little more than an extension of the imperialist tactics of the conqueror Joshua. 3,500 years ago, he's still mad at Joshua. Surely the judgment of Allah is reserved for them until Palestine is transferred from Dar al-Ab to Dar al-Islam. Ishmael shall have his revenge. His words. You aren't going to solve this with a fence or with guns ever. I mean, I'm not saying you can't retaliate. I I guess you have to. Ever hear of Anwar Sadat, the old president of Egypt? He said this in 1991. The assassination of Arab brethren like Goliath, by sheep herders like David, is the sort of shameful ignominy that we must yet set aright in the domain of the occupied Palestinian homeland. They're fighting a 3,000-year-old battle. See, you can't solve this with diplomacy. You know what I mean? I'm saying this is why they can go in and kill civilians, because David was a sheep herder who killed one of theirs. You see? And they think that way. But that's all to make the point that unless you win the hearts and minds, you can't win the battle. The battle's going to keep going. But a battle between Christian brethren is not like that. Because we have the same spirit. In the body of Christ, where both of the concerned parties have the same spirit, a change is not only possible, it is the goal. Through teaching, I hope to win your hearts and minds to right thinking. So all things are pure. That's the rule. Paul said he has it from Jesus Christ. So at least you know it's sourced in God, and it's true. Now, if you still harbor fears of it, that's fine. Over time, they will dissipate. But you remember, the thing itself is not evil. It 
Having said all that, though, it's evil for the man who eats with offense. You see the force of Paul's argument? Until the conscience of a man is convinced of the rightness or wrongness of a thing, it's not only harmful for the partaker, it becomes sin. For whatever is not from faith is sin. And for the stronger, the doctrinally correct brother, to lure the weaker brother to participate against his conscience, that too is sin. He's not ready yet. For if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. That's where we lose it. Friends, this is something we can do. There's enough love in us to do this. There's enough patience. And there ought to be a teachable spirit in people to sit down and realize that the reason I take a liberty you don't take is I understand the nature of things. De rerum natura. I know the nature of it, and it can't get me. But as long as you believe it can get you, it has power. So the mind of man must be one before the man can be one. And I've given all those examples to show that now. And know that the mind may be seen as the upper region of conscience. Now I'm saying that for a particular reason. I don't really know how the mind breaks up. I don't want to make you a diagram and say, this is the mind and this, the conscience is down here, but here's the upper region. But, so I'm not saying it dogmatically. But your mind has access to your conscience, and it can be educated and changed. And perhaps that's why Jesus once said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. He knew it would take time. Let these words sink down into your ears. He didn't say, swallow this doctrine whole and get over yourself. He said, let these words sink down into your ears. And then he went on to say, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then we read this. But they did not understand the saying. They did not understand the saying. It's a pretty simple, straightforward saying. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They they didn't get it. They didn't get it. It was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about it anymore. Why didn't they get it, do you suppose? I'm going to tell you why. Well-established personal prejudice. The teaching was too much for them at the time. Remember Jesus said this, he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, shall come, he shall lead you into all truth. It takes, it's a process, this leading. Their whole concept of the coming Messiah was that he could not be betrayed and delivered into the hands of men. He was too powerful for that. Such a thought went against the narrative they had believed all their lives as to the power of their deliverer. They couldn't comprehend that he would be crucified. So the concept of a sorrowful Messiah, a vulnerable Humble, passive, self-sacrificial Messiah had no access into their thoughts. It took time. He went right to the cross and told them he'd come back in three days, and they were in despair, forgetting that he said it, Till someone said, didn't he say something about three days? I mean, we all know that he spoke in figures and, and you know, uh, in, in symbolic language. He didn't really mean he was coming back in three days. You know, they, they, it didn't sink down into their ears yet. It was too much for them at the time. Sometimes teaching is like that. Have you ever taught somebody something? I used to witness to my mother. 
And she loved the Lord, and, and she did come to Christ before she died, but she had so much Catholic baggage. And some of us know what that can do to you. It is just, it just puts a cultic hold on things and practices and works and dead saints and, de- you know, other deities praying to Mary, all of these things that have nothing to do with true spirituality. And I would teach, and I would teach her these things, and I would watch her, and I could say to my wife, she's full. That's all she can take right now. She's full. She's full to the brim. I'll come back another day. And I could tell she'd start wandering, and I knew when my mother was full. But we'd talk about it again another day. That's what we're talking about here. Let these words sink down into your ears. So they must rather be bathed in spiritual truth until it sinks or seeps into their consciences. Until their change of conscience becomes an enlightenment of conscience. Verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So let's get the teaching straight in our minds. We're going to have the teaching. I don't expect everybody to receive it and for it to go down into your hearts immediately. But we have to admit that Paul has it from Jesus that nothing is evil in and of itself. It is in the use of the thing, right? Eating meat, drinking wine are by definition things indifferent and so may be lawfully, even joyfully partaken of unless some of the brethren are offended by such things. Pretty simple application, right? So what exactly is the responsibility of love in this case? What stance must the church take with regard to such things? If we simply ignore the controversy and continue to do as we please, we've determined to live in constant fear of offending. If we ban the controversial things, we determine to live as the weaker brethren, never gaining the liberating knowledge that it's not the thing themselves that present the danger. It's always the misuse of the thing. Now, I've taken the stance that banning is always the wrong course. I don't stand up here and say we're banning this or we're banning that. So-and-so's offended. No more of that. Unless it's something essential. But if things indifferent, I don't think that's the right approach. In fact, it seems to me that such things should not be determined from the top down in church government. I don't see that that's being said here. These are things best left in the hands of individual members in their own interpersonal relationships. We should individually grapple with food and wine and days and festivals. Interpersonal relationships. Doesn't that seem more the spirit of the teaching? Paul didn't say, gather together a council and decide which things you're going to allow and which things you're not. You know, imagine if we got together and we voted that we're not going to celebrate Christmas anymore. Christmas is a very contentious, non-essential thing in the, in the Christian faith. I just read a book on it by Henry Morse. And uh, he's a Jew, and he's very much against all of those pagan things coming into the church. I know from Romans 14 and other places it can't hurt us, right? But I do see his point. Some have said to me that Paul was in favor of banning controversial things like meat. Some people think Paul was in favor of banning meat. Why? From 1 Corinthians, he writes, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
Paul was willing to give up meat for his whole life lest one brother should stumble. Okay, I'm going to tell you something that's outrageous and outlandish and I have no right to say except for the fact that I'm right. He's exaggerating. He's not serious here. He's, ex- he's exaggerating for emphasis, and I can prove it to you. He's not speaking literally. He is, in fact, exaggerating for the sake of emphasis. And you may say, Pastor, how can you say such a thing? And I'll answer you this. It's obviously an overstatement because of the word if. He says, if food makes my brother stumble. What do you mean if? You know it makes certain people stumble. It's not a matter of if. He's talking about an individual situation. He's not talking about across the board. And then he says, I'll never again eat meat. But we know that he did eat meat. So we know two things. We know that he knows there's people offended by eating meat, offered to idols, right? And we know that he and Jesus and the apostles never gave up eating meat. In fact, Christianity would have been a vegetarian religion by now if we did it that way. We don't do it that way. We don't ban things across the board. We don't throw away our blood-bought Christian liberties because someone might be offended. We, we teach, and we expect people to be teachable. Because once you are put in a position of being forced to ban it, what, what's happened? A great reversal. This group is saying it's not a thing indifferent. It's an essential thing. You can't be a Christian if you eat that or drink that. You can't be a Christian if you celebrate Christmas or Easter. We have to put those away. You see, you've, you've turned them into essential things. That's anti-Christianity. You see the problem? You see where it exacerbates to that place? So why did Christianity not become a vegetarian, teetotaling community? I can tell you why. Jesus said why. In the Gospel of Matthew, he said, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon, and the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So to the weak brother, he's just looking for something to complain about. You can't satisfy him by banning it. John tried that. You can't satisfy him by enjoying it. Jesus tried that. In other words, we can ban meat, friends. We can ban wine. We can ban holidays and festivals and keeping company with sinners. And nothing will ever quite quell the complaints of those who find fault wherever it suits them. We cannot be the tyranny of the offended brother. In other words, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't stop hanging out with sinners and drinking wine at festivals. When things indifferent become confused with essential things, the whole situation reverses. And the weaker judgmental faction may not tyrannize the stronger. Paul writes of this to the Colossians when he says this, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. The stronger must be sensitive to the weaker, but the weaker must be teachable by the stronger. He has to at least sit And listen, friends, doctrine is dangerous. Liberty is dangerous. You can always misuse it. I talked about it last week. You know what else is dangerous? I hope you found out this by now, because if you didn't find this out, you haven't been preaching the gospel, but truth is dangerous. It can get you killed. There's a whole book of martyrs about people who spoke the truth. Everything I'm saying this morning is dangerous and can get you in trouble. But Christ trusts you with it.
And so do I. So you can ban all these things. You can think you're in some highest spiritual plane because you're abstinent from everything. But let no one judge you in food or in drink. The stronger must be sensitive to the weaker, but the weaker must become teachable. And Jesus Christ and his apostles did not keep any of these things from us. Teaching is always preferable to banning where things indifferent are concerned. We ban all sorts of things, bad things. We had the list this morning. I read it. Fornication, adultery, covetousness, idolatry, right? We allow some things in moderation, but we do all with an eye to the teaching of Scripture. I would never stand here and say something to you that I couldn't ground in Scripture. And if I did that, it would be by mistake and I'd repent of it next week. Let me tell you this. What do you think the most dangerous thing for the church is today? I know what it is. So do you. And the minute I say it, you'll know it. Speech. Speech is the thing everyone's trying to silence. Speech sets the world aflame, friends. James said the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, sets on fire the course of nature. It is set on fire by hell. No man can tame the tongue. Guess what? He's exaggerating. You can tame the tongue. He's exaggerating for emphasis here. If that weren't the case, he'd say, we must all take vows of silence forevermore. So yet there's no one among us who would ban the liberty of free speech among the brethren, even though we know the powers that be are trying to shut us up and we won't be quiet. We have a freedom of speech. And it doesn't come from government, it comes from God, and the founders said that it did. What about sexual intimacy? You know, there were groups in the first century trying to ban sex between married couples. Sexual intimacy is a grave danger, and temptations abound to fall into the most grievous and consequential sins due to its lore. Look at the wars that were fought in the Bible over illicit sex. Remember Dinah? Remember Hagar? The wars that were fought. Remember Tamar and Absalom? Remember these things? Sex is very, very dangerous. Yet the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply. Risk it. (laughs) Risk the danger. We're told that adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and every manner of sexual contact outside the marriage bond is unspeakably evil in the sight of God. Yet it's only the Gnostic cults that make the blessed union of man and wife an evil thing. From Hebrews we read, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Sex is not banned, it is blessed, because it's a gift of God. Right? There's your teaching. That ought to do away with the Gnostics creeping in here. I've noticed a lot of Gnostics lately. And what about wine? That's such the big issue of the day. Friends, if for some reason... Look, I drink wine. Let me just put it out there. All right? And some of you know I do. Pastor Bill does not. We get, around, we get along quite well. Um, let, me tell you a, let me tell you a story. I think I can get away with this. My son married Bill's daughter. Does that make us a cult? 
I, I've always wondered about that. But my son married Bill's daughter. Now, Billy doesn't drink. He's never drank his whole life. It's a conviction he has. I don't care if he has that conviction. I don't care if anyone has it. I had that conviction for several years of my life because of my young excesses in my life. But at one point in my life, um, my father-in-law said he was throwing um, a party. I forget exactly what it was for. And he said, well, we can't have any wine at it because Dan and Karen don't drink wine. Little did he know that we did drink wine. And here we were witnessing to these people, and we're going to go to an event, and we're going to let them believe that something they use with complete moderation. I, we have no drunks in our family at all, and we're going to tell them that it's evil and we can't take part in their affair. You see, you see that it, can be, it can be harmful on the other side. So Bill and I are marrying our two children, and Bill is dutifully paying for the wedding because it was his daughter... And that's the tradition that we do things. But I need to have wine at the wedding for all of my Italian relatives that have kind of come a long way and expect a wedding without wine would be unthinkable. And I want them to come, and I don't want them to have to take money out of their pocket and pay for it. So I marched over to Bill's and said, look it, I don't care about your particular... No, I didn't do that at all. I didn't do that at all. <laughs> I said, I'm not having him marry your daughter if we can't have wine at the wedding. I'm not doing that. I went over and said, Bill, I don't think I should invite all of my family and have it not be something. They can come and have a glass of wine or two, right, or whatever, and rejoice over a marriage like, I don't know, I've heard of one somewhere a long time ago in Cana. And uh, I said, we ought to be able to do this. And he was, of course, fine with it. And I said, Bill, you don't know anything about this subject. I do. I'll pay for the, for the bar. And that's how we handled it, right? We haven't spoken since, but... <laughs> no, but uh, so I paid for the bar so my family could cut My brothers-in-law, some of which funded half the building. Oh, no, we, do, we don't do that. When, of course, we do. Jesus did. The apostles did. It would have done more harm than good. Was that, a, was that a fair assessment of those days? Um, oh, most of you were at the wedding. I invited the whole church. But um, that's how we handled it. I still drink wine. Bill still does not. No problem, right? I'm not trying to make him drink wine, and he's not trying to make me stop. So wine, alcoholic beverages have been at the root of so much church discussing discussion. I have had people walk out because in my private life or in the private life of some of you, they drink wine, and I would not stand here and tell you how evil it is. Now, if you think I don't know how much destruction has happened at the hands of drunkenness, you're mistaken. I'm very closely associated with that. I understand. I lived it. My 20s are a blur. But we're told it's a blessing of God to be enjoyed in his presence and to commemorating the spilling of his blood by drinking it. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. You know it has been said that the unbeliever drinks to forget and the Christian drinks to remember. Now please know, I'm no stranger to the dangers of alcoholism. And neither is God a stranger to it. There's many prohibitive statements in scripture. 
But if partaking of it is in and of itself an evil indulgence, then the Pharisees were right about Jesus. He was indeed a a drunkard. And we know that's not the case. Now, I've heard that the wine of those days was not wine at all, but an impotent mixture of water and grape juice. Have you heard that? Have you heard that? There's different types of wine. John MacArthur goes to great lengths to tell us there's all different types, and none of them are really what we would drink today as wine. So therefore, it, we shouldn't drink it because it's not... It, it, what, what they drank then wasn't really wine and couldn't get everybody, anybody drunk. And then I'm sitting back and, re, and, and trying to reason this out, saying, then why did Paul say, don't get drunk with it? Could he have said, don't get drunk with grape juice, where is dissipation? Could he say that? When they said... Uh, to Peter and the disciples at Pentecost, when they spoke in tongues, where they said, these are drunk, and Peter said, we're not drunk on, on jelly as you presume. It's only the third hour of the day. Who would eat jelly at the third hour of the day? Well, everyone, because jelly's for breakfast. It doesn't make sense. If it isn't a wine that can get you drunk, we don't have any problem. And Paul would never have said it. So I don't understand all that teaching, but MacArthur, who comments on the dangers of wine drinking, are so grave that abstinence from it is the undoubted high road for the believer. But this is what he writes, because he went to the scripture. Despite the scripture's many warnings about the dangers of wine, the drinking of it is not totally forbidden in scripture and is, in fact, sometimes even commended Drink offerings of wine accompanied many of the Old Testament sacrifices. It's likely that a supply of wine was kept in the temple for that purpose. The psalmist spoke of wine which makes glad the heart of man, and the writer of Proverbs advises giving strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. So there were medicinal uses for wine. There were ceremonial uses for wine, and then there were personal uses for wine. And MacArthur, of course, knows that. He he knows the scripture. He's got a great mind. But yet he goes on to advise against any use of it at all. See, I have trouble with God allows it, but I don't. See, I can't get there. And if John can, and I guess he can, then that's fine. But from Ephesians 5.18, we read, Be not drunk with wine wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So John, in in commenting on the book of Ephesians, after noting that there's no biblical injunction against drinking it, goes on for 11 more pages to offer evidence that the liberty which is a gift of God is too great a temptation to sin for the people of God. When he could have just said what I said, we know it's dangerous, but it's also a gift of God. He refers to the wine of that day and teaches on the substance itself as being comparatively weak in alcohol content to today's wine, and so he blunts the edge of God's permission with fearful statistics. He teaches on the several types of wine that were present in that day and the several words used to describe them. He concludes that in most cases, wine was not even an intoxicating thing. It was more like jelly or jam or mixed with water. Now, I admire that scholarship. 
of his great mind, but I take issue with the tendency of church leaders to take a blessing of God and turn it into a fearful thing that must be avoided at all cost. Yet, I would cause no man to drink wine. I have, I gave the illustration, me and Bill. I don't know how to take all the information on wine as a sweet soft drink, but if it is so, then why does the apostle say, don't get drunk with it? When the, um, so I've been told that we all ought to aspire to the spirituality of a Nazarite. You familiar with the Nazarites? Supposedly there's only three in scripture. Really there's only one we can speak about is Samson. The, the other two, Samuel and John the Baptist, seem like they're, they're Nazarites. They, they, they don't drink wine. And so therefore that's the highest spiritual tribute you can give to God is to be a Nazarite, I guess, and therefore the Nazarites didn't drink wine. We shouldn't drink wine. But guess what else the Nazarites didn't do? They didn't cut their hair. I don't see anyone telling me I can't cut my hair. They couldn't touch a dead thing. Um, Peter, uh, or rather Samson, touched the, uh, the carcass of the lion, and so he's breaking all these vows. Nobody seems to care about dead things or long hair. It's only the wine part of it. And what's most nagging at all for that theory is, guess what? Nazarites do drink wine. It says it right in number six. It says the priest shall wave the wave offering before the Lord, together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So I'm, I'm told I have to aspire to the spiritual status of the Nazarite, but the Nazarite drinks wine too, because it's the blessing of God, and holy people partook of it. MacArthur's conclusion with regard to who may and who may not drink wine is quite astounding to me and incomprehensible. But that's usually the case when a personal prejudice takes the place of sound reasoning. And so he writes, and and this is a conclusion that I find totally incomprehensible, but this is what happens when you go away from the word into your own judgment. He gives his final conclusion. And he writes, that elders must remain abstinent from wine, from all alcoholic beverages, and that deacons who are not in such critical roles are allowed to drink wine in moderation. So, Duane, go take the wine out of my office. I'm kidding, there's none in there. And put it in your office. I mean, can, you be, can I take that seriously? Somewhere in the Bible, it's, you can come to the conclusion that an elder can't drink, but the deacon can? And that would mean, wait a minute now, the deacon can never promote to elder because now he drinks and he likes it. He's stuck. I mean, I don't get any of this. This is so far-fetched. Uh, this is what happens when you press the word to say something it doesn't say. We know it's dangerous, John. We get it. We know the stats we know about drunk driving. That's why when they first invented cars, people, there was so much drunkenness, they said, let's not invent these cars. <laughs> that really happened, by the way. It was said to Henry Ford. But when you come to these strange, unbiblical conclusions, because of your own personal prejudice, that's where you get away from the scriptures. Of course you don't have to do the thing the other brother does. And no one should... Try to make you do it or want you to do it. I don't do that.
So remember, our theology is clear. The substance itself is not the problem. The danger lies in the user. And yet it's good to teach on the nature of things. It's sin to urge the use of a thing against the conscience of a brother who harbors doubts. And it's sin for a brother to judge another for partaking of the blessings of God. And we should readily admit that all users are not created equal. You know, I have some people who've said to me, I try to be magnanimous to the weaker brother and recognize, I get it, it's wrong. You've had trouble in your family with it and, and you have this feeling it's hereditary. I don't believe that it's hereditary, by the way, other than habits being passed down, not genetics. But that's my personal take on it. But I've had someone say, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't drink because one sip makes you drunk and you're not allowed to be drunk. If that's true, then the Pharisees were right about Jesus. How could one sip? See, this is when you take a prejudice and you exacerbate it to a place where it's absolute, ir- absolutely irrational. So we may ask ourselves, should the glutton not eat? Should the person who swears abstain from speaking? Is it better for the man to be celibate than to be one flesh with his own wife? No, we have all these freedoms, and they're all dangerous and can lead somewhere bad. But we also have the Spirit of God, and we have a desire to walk with God, and we have love for one another. And I'll close with what Paul said to Timothy. He said, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith and giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. By who? By those who know the truth. Amen. Father, let these words sink down into our ears. Let us protect and be grateful for the liberties you've given us. But let us be wise and sensitive to the scruples of those who do not see things in life the way we do, Father. There is room for both in the body of Christ, or you would not have brought us together, O Lord. But let us not judge the other in things indifferent, And let us not flaunt the liberties to those whose consciences are tender in these areas. We ask your your mercy upon us in these things. Amen.